0: Uh, one, of the, one of the weird quirks that I have, I, I like things in a particular way, um, and I've, I've learned that's difficult. Is there is there something, when you go to a restaurant and you sit down, it's a, it's a, like, there's a server, it's a fancy restaurant in my book, like, there's a server coming to serve you. Is there something, like, like, you and me, you know, like, there's just this one thing that a server can do that if that server does that, oh, they're getting a big tip. They're getting a big tip. Like, what is that thing? Do you have that thing? Maybe I'm the only one weird enough to have that thing. Like one thing, that they can do this one thing, and I'm oh, going to be so much more generous now. Uh, do you know what it is for me? Refill. Refired refills. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, for me, it's when they give you the straw, and it always comes in a wrapper. Which celebrate hygiene, that's great. But then you take it out of the wrapper, and the wrapper just goes on the table. Like, what is this? If that server will come take that wrapper away, like, praise god you are getting a bigger tip you're getting a bigger tip if they come just take that wrapper off the table like oh, peace peace wells up in my heart and it's it's great um, if, and like it i know that it's weird and that's okay but if i were if i were to like feel really confident in myself like not have so many insecurities and i go to eat somewhere by myself and it's like a self-serve thing like you take your own trash i'm going to sit as close to the trash can as i can And I will probably go to that trash can at least four times before I'm done with my meal. Um, Because it just brings like a calm and a peace to my heart when things are off the table. And so like I finished with that. There's no reason for it to be here. So I know it makes no sense. But I will walk over to that trash can and throw it away and come back and enjoy my meal. Uh, That's just how I am. Uh, I I don't want to make light of this because this can actually be really painful for a lot of people. Um, when, when you have like a compulsive behavior and, and things just bother you. Um, like early in my marriage, I, uh, w- we bought this house, uh, got a really, really good deal, but it needed a lot of work. And so I spent three months working on it, got married to my wife and we come home from our honeymoon. And now it's the first time that she's coming home. She's going to live in this house with me. And I loved what I had done with the place. Uh, we had built this, this bar table. It's still in our kitchen. Um, me and dad and, and my friend Mitchell, we, we built this bar table, and I loved it and all that stuff, and it looked great there in our, in our kitchen along the wall. And we walk inside, and Courtney, my wife, she throws her purse on it. I come home from work. I see this bar table, and I see this purse. Ah! What is that? Why? Why did you do that? And that has been my life ever since for 13 years. It actually, really, in all honesty, led to a lot of conflict. Um, right, like, uh, people say a house is supposed to look like people live in it. No, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Um, yeah, that's rough. And hey, Do you have any compulsions or behaviors that you wish you could control? Do you, I mean, we all do. We we have behaviors that you you just wish, like, man, if I could just get this under control. Why do I respond in this way? Why is it that like, if this certain thing happens, then I have no choice. I just respond in this way. It just wells up out of me and and here I am. Or I just, I get a spare moment and I run back to this thing or whatever it is. Do you have these behaviors, these patterns, these things that you do that you wish you did not? And then what is our hope for changing those? Because can you... I know the answer to this, and you do too, but can you conjure up enough willpower? Can you conjure up enough authority within yourself to demand change of yourself and see it come about immediately? It's like, oh, I don't like this thing I do. Click. Oh, well, I'm done. Can you do that? Oh, we all struggle. Maybe more simply put, what determines your behavior? If sometimes we have behaviors we don't like, Whether that's in us, in our kids, in our spouse, in our coworker, in our teammate, whatever it is, in whatever sphere you're in, we see these things and we wish that that was not happening. We want the behavior to change, but then how do we get that behavior to change? What determines our behavior? So now, the word of God, Philemon, as we continue this, but today we're going to do more than one verse. You're welcome. Philemon (laughs) chapter one, start in verse eight. If you'll turn in your copy of scripture, it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Philemon chapter one, verse eight, we'll start. Paul is speaking here. Um, Recall that he is Paul, an apostle, writing this letter specifically to the recipient Philemon, and this is what he says in verse eight. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus, I became his father while I was in chains. This, um, this, this, is, this is actually where we get the revealing of the letter's purpose. Um, we we kind of disclosed that up front as we started the series, just so that it would help to understand the context of this as a whole as we go through each part. Um, but this is where it becomes explicit. This is why Paul is writing. He's making a request. And the request is for Philemon to do what's right. He's making a request for Philemon to do what is right. So let's consider the three parties that are involved in this request. First, you have Paul. Paul we know largely from the book of Acts and then from his Pauline letters or epistles um, that make up the majority of the letters in the New Testament. But Paul is this guy who hated the church. He hated Jesus. He hated anyone who would follow in the way of Jesus. And he actually made it his life's mission to exterminate Christians from the face of this planet. He wanted to throw them all in jail or see them murdered. So much so that we have the story told of when he stood there at the, the martyrdom of one of the early Christians. And he stood there holding the coats, watching an approval and giving it his endorsement as Stephen is stoned and is killed as they murder him, claiming that he's blasphemous. And yet he looks up and sees the heavens opened and sees Jesus, the Son of God, standing there next to the throne. And this guy... He becomes known in his Gentile name, Paul. The Greek name, Paul. Saul was there giving approval to that, watching over it. He hated Christians that much that when he actually encountered Jesus personally and thus becomes an apostle in the capital A sense that, like, he was personally sent from Jesus, his own testimony, he actually saw Jesus, talked with Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus. And you know what he was on his way to do? Go throw some more Christians in jail. He hated Jesus and his followers that much that when he encountered Jesus, he was actually going to try to undo everything that Jesus had done. That guy becomes this just passionate follower of Jesus, so incredibly gifted, and he becomes a church planter. He's going around the known world trying to preach the gospel to the Gentile world. He's left Israel, and he's trying to start churches all over the known world. And as he does that, he, he's raising up all these disciples, and one of them he encounters is a man named Onesimus. And this, this guy, Onesimus, was a slave. He was owned by another man named Philemon, and he ran from Philemon. He escaped. As a, We'll talk much more about this in the coming weeks, but slavery in that day is not what we typically think of as chattel slavery in the American history sense. You would intentionally put yourself likely into slavery, but it was a real indebtedness. That could have been for economic purposes, for all kinds of things. And there was an awful, absolutely awful, like there's, there's, this should not happen. There's an ownership here. and yet Philemon somehow owns Onesimus and Onesimus runs from him. It's possible he took something with him. that seems to hint at that later in this letter. But he has wronged Philemon and he encounters Paul. And Paul calls him his son. Because remember, it's all the family of God. The church, we're family. It's family language. Brother, sister, son. That Paul becomes like a spiritual father to him. That he sees Onesimus come to faith, puts his trust in Jesus. And now, like Paul had that radical conversion, where suddenly he goes the very opposite direction. He was trying to kill Jesus' followers, and now he is making followers of Jesus. And Onesimus becomes one of them that he's discipling Onesimus, and Onesimus is a huge blessing to Paul because at this point, Paul is actually a prisoner because of his proclamation of the gospel. And so Paul is writing this letter as a prisoner on behalf of Onesimus to Philemon, the one who was wronged by Onesimus, saying like, let's make this right. Do what's right here. I know he didn't do what's right, but in light of the gospel, I want you to do what is right. Paul, read it again. For this reason, although i have great boldness in christ to command you to do what is right paul is like i have the authority now think about this if you were philemon and you receive a letter from paul like you have heard about paul they know each other they've they've personally interacted paul is writing to him so he knows him personally and yet you also hear all the stories of what paul has done like the church is trading these stories like crazy at this point you wouldn't believe what's happening with paul like, he healed this guy in this way. Like, he got bit by a snake. Like, all these, just, you're hearing these wild stories. We don't know exactly when he writes this letter. But at any point, when he would have written this letter while he was in prison, he has done amazing things. Like, God has worked miraculously in him in amazing ways. And so, you know, this guy is an apostle. That God works in and through him in profound ways that is different. Wow, I've heard the stories. And that guy writes you a letter do you take that lightly? No. That guy has authority. Like, when he says to do something, I'm a lot more inclined to listen because I've seen God work in him in ways that God hasn't worked in me. That just, that doesn't happen regularly. Like, this is amazing. And so there's an authority there. There's also an authority that, Like, this is someone who has been personally dispatched by Jesus Christ. Like, most of the believers, especially these in the Gentile world, like, Jesus' ministry was confined to Israel, to, to ancient Palestine. And so now you've got believers, followers of Jesus around the known world, but they're hearing, like, yes, I'm going to listen to the ones who actually saw Jesus face-to-face, to so know what is the way of Jesus. And as, as they're... We'll just get something better. And so we're so connected to so many people that we think that it's okay to just cut people out. And so in the same way, I can't compete with that. <laughs> in the same way, we think anyone with authority, they fail us at all. Gone. And you know what's left when we operate in that way? Authority. Except God. Because God is the only one who will not fail us. And so if we're to have any kind of authority in our life, which is good, Scripture actually says, rebuke an elder in the presence of all. And that's a little terrifying to me as one of the elders of this church. (laughs) But it doesn't mean that I hide my failures from you. We live in light of the gospel. We live on the basis of love. And so I have to actually be honest about the fact that there are things that I could do that would absolutely disqualify me. There are qualifications for eldership, there are qualifications for leadership. They may not be as explicit in Scripture. But we, we should rightly discern who should lead us and who should we submit to in leadership, but then we do submit when it seems right and it's in accordance with scripture. We submit to leadership because authority is actually a good thing for us. Now, this is the way N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, who says, authority is what happens when the gardener wants to affirm the goodness of the genuine flowers and vegetables by uprooting the weeds in order to let beauty and fruitfulness triumph over chaos, thorns, and thistles don't we want that? We need that. Authority is actually a good thing. It can be misused. It can be abused. But it is a good thing. And so Philemon, getting this letter from Paul, who has every authority to say, do what's right. But Paul knows there's more than just this directive that I can give you. That I don't have to do this just because I have the right and the ability to do it. He says, instead, on the basis of love, do what is right, Philemon, Do what is right. You know why? A request is a lot harder to resist than an order. Think about that. If I or anyone comes to you and says, do this, and it might be something that creates a little tension for you. Like, that's going to be hard. I, I don't really like that or whatever the case may be. It's a lot easier for you to buck against that and say, nah, not happening. than if I came to you and said, I really need help. This is what's right. Can you do this for me? I can think about that. Your spouse. If they come to you and say, do this, versus your spouse comes to you and says, can you help with this? Will you please do this? Which one is easier for you to like, I bristle, not, not put up the wall? Certainly, it's much easier to defy or to push back against an order than a request. Paul knows that he's making an appeal here instead of just giving a directive, and there absolutely is time for directives. and directives can be done on the basis of love, but we have to think about, like, what is the heart in drawing someone in to seeing their behavior change? Make it on the basis of love, because this is the way of Jesus. Like in Scripture, like in the church, ecclesiologically, like in, in even this church, I hope and pray that we always submit to Scripture, but the way of leadership at the top level in the church not out of greed for money, but eagerly not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. That the way that any of us as pastors should lead you with real authority over your life is not to just swoop in and say, do it this way, this is what you better do. It's actually to humble ourselves and be an example for you to follow. That yes, there are times when we may step in and say, no, on the authority of God's word, this is what you must do. As a follower of Jesus, as one brother speaking to another brother or sister, I need you to know this is what our Lord demands. But the way that we live that out is not compulsion, it's willingly. The willingly we lay down our life and we become an example that you would follow willingly. Not begrudgingly, but you would follow willingly. That's the aim of leadership. It's the way of Jesus. Jesus the Son of God, pre-incarnate, pre-existent, the one who has always been with the Father and the Spirit and yet takes on human flesh. And as he takes on human flesh and he lives a sinless life, a sinless life, to be the perfect sacrifice, to be the spotless lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. When he gets to this point, roughly 33 years into his life, it's Passover week and they're marching up. He knows that the cross is what he is going to, but he comes into Jerusalem and he says, I've I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. And so he's made arrangements for him and his best friends, the disciples, to come together in the upper room, as it's called, some wealthy person's house. They're gonna be here and Jesus is the host of this meal. Jesus has put together this meal and it's Passover. There's supposed to be these elements like we have in communion as a continuation of that. Like you're gonna see the bread and remember the Passover when the yeast was not to rise. Like you're gonna eat it in a hurry. And there's there's supposed to be lamb and there's to be this cup of blessing, this wine. And Jesus reorients all of that. He is the lamb that is present that's going to be slaughtered like on Passover. They would kill a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost and there would be the wine. This is to be our celebration. This is our joy. This is also the wrath, the cup of wrath that Jeremiah talks about is gonna be poured out. And Jesus says, that cup is my blood. It's gonna be spilled for you. This bread broken my body, broken for you. But that night, when Jesus makes that so clear to them, knowing he's going to be arrested, probably within a couple hours of this occurrence, Jesus, creator of the cosmos, that has entered into his own creation, takes off his outer robe, and he takes a towel and a bowl of water because no one was willing to do the dirty work of cleaning their feet when they came in. And the king of kings and lord of lords gets down and starts to wash with his fingers and a rag the filth from between their toes. Between their toes. This is how John 13, three to five records it. It says, Jesus knew that the father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. And then jump to 12. It says, When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, So you imagine the tension of that moment? What, what just happened? As your stinky feet, when you even get to wear socks and shoes, but you're, imagine Jesus coming in here right now, taking your shoes off and putting his fingers between your toes. How uncomfortable we feel. That this is God in human flesh doing this to me in this moment. What is this all about? And he says, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you're speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Jesus has all authority. He has every right to demand of his own creation to do exactly what he as the creator would demand of it. (laughs) He has the right to do that. Every right. Uncontested. He as a leader has never failed. He is fully qualified. We should submit in every way. We rightly would call him teacher. Like we learn from him. We learn what is right. And Lord, meaning we submit. He is master over all. He says, rightly so. I am teacher and Lord. But do you see what I've done for you? That I would serve you in such a way. That you would give us an explicit example that you should do just as I have done for you. This is what authority in the way of Jesus looks like. This is what... It is to see someone's behavior change, to make a request of someone, is to appeal on the basis of humble, sacrificial love. Like at what cost that the Son of God would incarnate, that He would condescend, He would come down and be with His own creation, and suffer as we suffer. And then, like, watch this, guys. Takes off His outer robe. This is shameful behavior. This is embarrassing. And now on his hands and knees, scooting around the room, putting his fingers, we're we're here to eat, and he's putting his fingers between our toes. And he says, I've given you an example, because you rightly call me Lord and teacher. One want an authority over you, but this is what it looks like to exercise that authority. It's to serve you. To see that I'm not just about behavior modification here. I don't want you to just play the part better. Coming after your heart. I want to see a real change. I want to see something different. It's um, as I was taught growing up in leadership, you, you have two types of authority you have ascribed authority and you have achieved authority. Uh, you can apply this to status of any kind that you have ascribed, meaning like it's written, it's it's oh, it's in your title. Like when you, when you have your email signature, it's those numbers that follow it, or it's that position, that role, whatever it is. Like you have ascribed authority. Like, I'm your father, son. You better do what I say because I'm dad. And that's not altogether wrong. It's actually right. But there's only so much power in that ascribed authority. That because you call someone boss, it only earns so much authority. Much of it more than we want to admit. But there's only so much there. But then there's achieved authority. Achieved authority is what has become deserved and earned. That as as someone with authority shows you that they're trustworthy, shows you that they have your best in mind, then we suddenly, willingly, from an inner place, not just outward compliance, but from an inward heart, we generally want to submit and follow in that. And so it's, it's kind of like head and heart. That from the head we have this ascribed authority. It's a knowledge of a chain of command and we can't break unity of command. That we're, um, the org chart is clear. You're here or you're here. And this one has to submit to this one. That's a head knowledge. But a heart knowledge of authority is to see I, I actually feel a trust. I feel a sense of respect and I have this willing submission. And that is the way of Jesus. That he has every right to demand change, and yet he enters in, and grips our heart. <laughs> one is informational, and one is relational. And my quirks, uh, my compulsions—they need to change. It was not good for me. I mean, it would be very embarrassing for me to sit with any of you at a restaurant, or my wife, and and just keep running to the trash can. Like you might laugh at it for a while, but then you're like, okay, this is annoying. Like I want to—I'm a little offended. Like be present in the conversation, Kevin. And so it really would be disrespectful and just unloving for me to act on those compulsions. And my wife, it is not fair for her to have me freak out. Ah! Why is there a purse on the counter? Like, <laughs> She's like, what, what, what is a counter for to set things on? No, no, it's not. <laughs> It's not fair. It's not, it's not good for the relationship and so I've had to learn to change. I had a, a friend who was a counselor some years ago who just kind of watching my quirkiness. He was like, hey, "This is what I want you to do today. Five o'clock. You're done with work. Work until five o'clock. And the moment that your phone tells you it's five o'clock, you stand up and you walk out the door. You leave everything on your desk. You don't push your chair in. You just walk out the door. And I know that he had my best at heart. And you may ask, did, it? did it work? <laughs> the thought of it hurt. <laughs> like, this is complete savagery. <laughs> so no, I don't know if it worked because I didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> but I'm glad you can laugh about it. Um, but at home, I really did have to learn to slowly adapt. And the, and the level of stress, the just seeing clutter, you know, we had kids, <laughs> we won't go there, but... I, <laughs> I had to learn because I value the relationship, my behavior had to change. It's on the basis of a relationship that we should change. It's on the basis of love in a loving relationship. And so change on the basis of love. If you want to see something changed in your own behavior, maybe it's not just about like, oh, I got to like eliminate this and all this. Like there's great there's great value to different strategies and techniques for how to to see compulsive behaviors change. But what if you saw something deeper? What if we looked inside the heart and said, "Why? Is is there a disordering of my loves? And how can I address that? See, like I care more about my wife and my kids than I care about the organization of our home. And that does not mean that I don't come home and get it under control. That's okay." But I have to rearrange those loves. I love them more. So, do I want my kids to always know that, like, daddy's first thing is, why is the house a wreck? Like, what happened here? Or, hey, I'm home. I'm so glad to see you. How's your day? Because that's more important than, yes, in five minutes, we're going to clean this stuff up, but <laughs> put them in a right order. And slowly over the years, I have learned to just be okay with that. My behavior has changed, but it's on the basis of love. And I still struggle, because love is sacrificial. I mean, it's going to cost you. But like Jesus, we willingly endure that cost, because there's actually joy on the other side of it. It was for joy that he endured the cross, despising the shame. But for joy set before him, he endured the cross. He went to the cross with you in mind, saying, I love you, and I can't wait to get you. It's going to be messy. It's going to hurt. I can't wait to get you. You're mine. He's coming for our heart. And so Paul writes this beautiful theological treatise on what the gospel is in Romans 1 through 11. And then he gets to 12 and he says, now in light of all that, he says explicitly, therefore, meaning because of all of that, because of the beauty of the gospel, that you were a wretched dead sinner and God in grace and his kindness has brought you to repentance in love. He has shown you that This is the true way for life everlasting. It's turn from your sin. Confess him as Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And so you come to him by faith. His spirit abides in us, giving us these gifts and calling us into holiness, that you're no longer a slave of sin, but a slave of righteousness. And there's real freedom in that. And so all the beauty of this, that nothing ever could take you away from him. It's his love for you. You'll never be separated. And now, in light of that gospel, he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. What is he saying? Therefore, because of all this, because of all what? because of the gospel, in view of the mercies of God. So if you didn't already catch the connecting word there, in view of the mercies of God, the God who loves you and says, you deserve wrath, but in grace, I'm giving you life. Forgiveness of sins, life everlasting. He says, in light of that, I urge you, like, live out a life of holiness. Live out a life of worship. And what's it gonna look like? It's gonna look like change. But where does the change happen? Be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you can discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. That We have to change the way we think and it's changed the way we think to see everything in light of the gospel. And we live in light of that and it changes things. That God loves us this much. And this is the motivation of Jesus. Love. What is your motivation as you seek to change the behavior of others? Um, Pastor Scott referenced a book that he has been reading or listening to. Um, and he's talking about, you know, like with our children, we can discipline for correction, which is right and good. But behind that, it's either for discipleship or it's compliance. Do I want people who submit to me to just comply with what I want or do I want to see their hearts free to experience the peace of God, to know that they are loved, that you are beloved, and to live in light of that, The motivation of Jesus was love. It's love for the glory of the whole Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's love for his own creation that's made in his own image, but it's love for you. Can you believe this good news? Amen. I'll share it. Let's pray. Father, you're good and glorious. There's no one like you. So we praise you. We thank you. Would you change us? Would you help us to be a people who not only can discern what is right, but then live in light of that, in view of the mercy of God? God, help us to see your mercy. Help us to see your gospel, to see the way that you love us, and then on the basis of love, change us. And help us to live that out as we lead others. In the name of Jesus, make it so. Amen.